This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, religious liberty is not just protecting your own personal practice. It means that you also have to look after the liberties and rights of your neighbor. We're going to dig into that and talk about it with our guest, Asma Yudin as we discuss her new book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Asma Yudin. She's a religious liberty lawyer who has worked on cases at the U.S. Supreme Court and in federal appellate and trial courts. She's the founding editor-in-chief of altmuslimah.com and a producer and advisor for the Emmy and Peabody-nominated docuseries The Secret Life of Muslims. She's written for the New York Times, The Washington Post, Teen Vogue, Newsweek, and Religion News Service. We're talking about her recent book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. Asma Yudin, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here. So I love your book, When Islam is Not a Religion. Uh, I found it to be incredibly provocative. And as a person who works a lot myself on conversations about First Amendment rights and religious liberty, I found it to be incredibly informative. I learned a lot that I didn't already know from my study of these subjects. And there's a section of this book that I think really begins to introduce our conversation, and it's found on page 308 of your book, When Islam is Not a Religion. If you could, I'd love for you to read that for our listeners. Sure. So that section reads, advocates like myself who promote religious liberty across political and religious lines, representing conservative Christian clients and a range of religious minorities, Sikhs, Muslims, Jews, Native Americans included, find America's cynicism about religious freedom exceedingly worrying. My extensive approach has been informed by my international advocacy in countries where religious liberty is literally a matter of life and death. Those experiences have given me pretty sobering insight into what a society looks like when the fundamental human right to religious liberty is threatened. Say the wrong thing, and you'll find yourself in prison. Interpret your religion differently than the mainstream does and find yourself on death row. I've seen firsthand what the ramifications would be if Americans, too, started carving out broad exceptions to religious liberty because we failed to see the importance of a particular belief or found that that belief offended our liberal sensibilities. It's this type of vigilance that has motivated my own approach to religious liberty claims that I don't agree with. One of the hallmarks of religious liberty is that it protects people of all faiths, even if their beliefs seem unfounded, flawed, implausible, or downright silly. It's not that religious liberty requires relativism or indifference to truth. Instead, it's based on an understanding of the religious quest, humans searching for answers to their ultimate questions and living in accordance with their authentic beliefs. And that's our guest, Asma Yudin, reading from her recent book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. 
what I love about that passage is it gives us such a rich place to begin this conversation. And so let's start unpacking some of those terms. You reference here the idea of religious liberty. When we're talking about that in, a, in an American context, and in, and in particular in reference to the American Constitution, what does religious liberty mean legally? So religious liberty, and that's an important point that you say legally, because religious liberty is at its core a legal concept. I think oftentimes in our discourse, we many people confuse religious liberty with religious pluralism or religious tolerance. But in fact, religious liberty is about the relationship between the government and the religious individual or religious institution. And it negotiates that relationship and explains the cases in which a limitation, a government limitation on someone's religious practice is warranted or not. And so you you mentioned just now that you call this a negotiation. Why do you say that it's a negotiation? Shouldn't it just be cut and dried? People should be allowed to worship as they wish, right? Yes. I mean, so the religious liberty as it's protected under the U.S. Constitution and on that note, also broadly under international law, the default position is that people have this right to engage in their in their religious exercise and the playing out or manifestation of their sincerely held religious beliefs. And but there are certain narrow cases where a where the government might very much have a reason to step in, and those are under the relevant legal test called a compelling government interest. And so, in many cases. And this, again, the, the default is for people to be to have that freedom. But the negotiation comes in in cases where the government has some concern. And in some cases, especially these days in terms of our discourse, which is extremely charged, religious freedom is becoming an issue that's deeply polarizing, that private actors and, and the public discourse is also very much involved in that, that process of negotiation. And one of the things the book looks at is the way that that public discourse begins to impact government-afforded rights. And so you, you're talking right now about when the government steps in, and you use a, a phrase here around religious liberty called compelling government interest. And I want to make sure that our listeners are tracking with the conversation. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the default position is the notion that individuals have a right to worship as they please. But there are moments when the government might find a compelling interest to step in and to minimize or to stop the exercise of those rights. What are some examples of a compelling government interest to interfere in these rights to worship? Sure, and I actually opened the book with some examples because I know that particularly members of the audience that I'm trying to reach with this book, which are conservative Christians, I know that a huge concern about a book that, or any argument that's focused on affording freedom to Muslims, is unfortunately very much tied up with this idea that Muslims will use freedom to to wreck havoc, basically, and to use it in the most extreme form to sort of take over American society and subvert U.S. constitutional values. Unfortunately, as absurd as that might sound, is something that I hear all too often. And so I make it a point to put the reader at ease and hope that they'll continue to read the book in the very beginning by saying, like, look, even though this book is advocating for religious freedom for all, including Muslims, who happen to not just be a religious minority, but also perhaps the most despised minority, and statistically, in the polls to show that Muslims are among the most despised minorities in America. And look, but when I say I want religious freedom for all, it doesn't mean free for all. There are cases where religious believers have been stopped. And so, for instance, Jehovah's Witnesses, who want to deny a life-saving blood transfusion to their children. That's a case in which the government can rightly step in any time when there's a risk to physical safety or to well-being, to, to someone's health, I mean, especially with life-or-death issue, 
something that's being battled out right now, for instance, in terms of vaccination. National security is another big one. It comes up a lot in, unfortunately, Muslim cases, whether it be just in the discourse or in the courts. Of course, later on in the book, I talk about when some of these interests might be overbroad, right? So you can say national security, you can say we want to prevent violence, but then the government has to actually back up with claims with evidence. So, but so some of those interests, to answer your question, David, would be, again, safety, national security, security generally, for instance, a woman who might want to, who usually covers her face, but shouldn't be allowed to in cases of a government ID, uh, when she poses, you know, a, a security threat to others and also gets in the way of a viable government interest in people being able to identify you based on your ID. So uh, this is very, very helpful. And if I'm hearing you correctly, just to pull out one of the examples you just said, a compelling government interest might be when a woman has a religious desire for face covering. So she wears a burqa or hijab. And so part of her face is obscured. The government has an interest in having her face be visible for the purposes of an identification card. And so that would be an example of where the government could say we have a compelling interest to violate your religious desire to have your face covered because there's a greater, more general interest at stake here. First of all, have I heard you correctly? Yes, that's correct. I mean, I think about it in terms of, I mean, there's an actual case along these lines that held the same. But if you think about it just in terms of what's going on in France and what has gone on, right, in the series of the various iterations of these bans on Muslim religious clothing, right? So one is applicable to religious garb in public schools that stops people, the students from wearing headscarves. I don't think this concern extends to headscarves. I'm very specifically talking about a veil that covers your face and leaves perhaps only your eyes visible. So in the case of the Borka ban, as it's understood in France, it is very broad. So that's a case in which you have a country that's imposing this ban, and it's much too broad. It's not something that's being regulated by this legal standard that I just described, and which is very unique to the United States because we do have an interest, again, in that providing the default to freedom. And so we say, yes, we understand the interest, but it can only be applied in these very narrow cases, unlike, for example, of the work of that in France, where it just essentially says you can't cover your face in public. And so that distinction, I think, helps to kind of bring out the point. There's another piece to this that I think we need to highlight, and that is, if I'm not mistaken, the government can't say we want to object to a woman covering her face because it is a religious practice. They can't say we specifically want only Muslims to uncover their faces. Instead, it's my understanding that any type of law that would be used in this particular case where the, the government has a compelling interest, it would have to be, and here's a technical phrase we might want to unpack, it would have to be neutral and generally applicable law. First of all, is that correct? And if so, what does that mean? Well, sure. I mean, so if a regulation is, let's say there was this, this law, which I'm sure exists, which is you can't cover your face when you're sitting to take your government ID picture, for instance, the driver's license picture. If it was in any way singling out a particular group or particular religious group or religion generally, right? So anybody who covers their face for religious reasons, that's one version of a religion versus non-religion. Or any Muslim who covers their face, right, essentially opening up the possibility that if there are other religious believers of other religions, that then does violate the premise of neutral, generally applicable laws essentially stand because the neutrality part of it and the general applicability part of it are also in question. The standard, I was also not just talking about the standard under the free exercise clause, but also specifically under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that exists at both the federal level and in a number of states. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Asma Yudin. We're discussing her recent book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Asma Yudin. She's recently written a book called When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. What is the proper role of the government when there are two people who deeply hold differing religious beliefs and they are in disagreement? Well, again, the government only steps in in a case where it's the government that's restricting someone's belief, right? So the government has to have a rightful role in that dispute. You you may be referring to to any number of, like, public conversations, which a lot of people do these days feel that the government is favoring one side of the debate or the other, and then enacting measures specifically in order to then insert itself into these conversations, right, Uh, in order to favor one over the other. And so in response to that, yes, the government should not take those positions, should not privilege one position over another, and should try to stay out of the conversation to the extent possible. Well, in the first segment, you did a very good job of giving us the broad landscape of religious liberty as it stands right now in 2019. But I'd like to ask you a couple of other specific questions about the road that led us here. And we've referenced a couple of times in the conversation already the First Amendment. And the First Amendment starts off with two very important clauses, what are often referred to as the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And briefly, if you could, for my listeners, what does the Establishment clause say, and what does the free exercise clause say? Well, the free exercise clause, again, it gives broad latitude, of course, restricted by certain cases, which you alluded to, David, but it's focused on the ability to exercise our beliefs in the broadest form possible, whereas establishment clause is there to negotiate between the favoring or disfavoring between non-religion, religion, and among religions. So the government cannot get involved in a number of different ways the government might get involved that would then favor a particular religion over another one. And so the free exercise clause basically says that citizens are free to practice their beliefs. And the establishment clause, if I'm hearing you correctly, says the government's not going to be there to say one type of belief is better than another. Have I heard that correctly? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And so even though those seem fairly straightforward, there's a convoluted history in trying to actually make that apply in real life. And that's where the Supreme Court has stepped in, particularly in the last 70 years or so. And so tell us a little bit about the increasing role of the Supreme Court in helping to decide between the balance, the negotiation of free exercise and and establishment. Sure. So in the first segment, I had mentioned a standard, which I don't think I I named it, but it's a strict scrutiny standard, which I explained is the one that's applied under under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and in some cases under the Free Exercise Clause, which might raise the question, why not in all cases under the Free Exercise Clause? And in fact, 
pre-1990, it was the standard under the free exercise clause, but there was a case in 1990 called Employment Division v. Smith, where Justice Scalia specifically narrowed it and said that in cases where the government has a neutral, generally applicable law, again, a phrase that you, David, used earlier, then you don't get access to, the religious believer does not get access to this heightened level of scrutiny. So again, if you violate either of those prongs, if it's not generally applicable, if it's non-neutral, you do get access to the standard, but not if, if the law uh, doesn't violate those two prongs. And so because of that, because of the new state of the law and, and the reaction to that decision across a broadly bipartisan group of religious believers was, well, this is completely wrong and this is, it's running roughshod over minority rights specifically and all religious freedom more broadly. And so there was a measure to pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. There are various iterations. I mean, the first version was applicable to the state, and then there was a case saying, well, that's actually unconstitutional. And so there's one for what's applicable to the federal level, and then each state has to then either pass its own RIFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or interpret its state constitutional provisions to basically use the same standard. And so that has led much of the present debate and, unfortunately, polarization in the space of religious freedom, because it then says that every time you want a religious believer wants to be exempted from a particular law or saying the government cannot apply a law to it because it needs an accommodation, either it has to bring a case under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act arguing for that, or the legislature can sort of take the first step and build that exemption right into a particular law. And so there have been cases that are now dealing with this battle between sexual freedom and religious freedom where a number, for example, uh, conservative Christian believers say that certain non-discrimination norms shouldn't apply to them because in certain very limited cases, because if they if those laws force them to engage in, in a particular practice that violates their deeply held beliefs, then that is in violation of these principles of free exercise that are protected currently under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so let me take a couple of things that you just said and kind of unpack them. So we talked about prior to 1990, there was a certain set of interpretations of the free exercise clause that were broadly protective, and the the government had to pass a very high bar to interrupt the exercise of those religious practices. And then you mentioned in 1990 there was a case called Employment Division v. Smith, and that changed the landscape. Very briefly, what was at stake in Employment Division v. Smith? So that case involved two members of the Native American Church who ingested peyote during their religious rituals, and they were fired from their positions as counselors at a drug rehab center and were barred from receiving unemployment benefits because it was considered that they were fired for workplace misconduct. The idea is that you work at a drug rehab center, but you're using these drugs outside the workplace, and that was considered a workplace misconduct. And so the specific law at issue... And so if I'm hearing you correctly, they ingested this drug, peyote, as part of a religious practice, the Native American religion, and then they went to work at a drug rehab facility where they were, they were drug tested and they were fired because they failed the drug test. Was their argument that they were taking this drug as part of their religious practice and therefore it should be exempt? Well, the idea was, yes, the, the fact that they had used the peyote as part of a religious ceremony and had violated a law that prohibited the use of peyote. And so the idea was that they should have had an exemption from that law. They should, that law should not apply to them. And specifically then they shouldn't have been fired and then barred from unemployment benefits because it was because of violation of a criminal law constitutes a workplace misconduct. 
And then prior to this case, they would have had that kind of protection and exemption. But it was this case that then said, no, if the law is generally applied, then a person using religious practice as a shield against the law, that's no longer a viable defense. And so everything changed. And then it went from a broad set of protections, if I'm hearing you correctly, to people having to basically prove their case much more stringently that their religious belief should qualify. Is that correct? Well, I mean, so it wasn't necessarily the case that pre-employment that they would have been protected. It just would it would have been a different standard that would have been at place that would have been able to, again, to use the word negotiate, figure out the different interests at play here between the religious believers' interests and the government's interests, and then decide on the basis of that. And so the change that happened in this case is essentially saying, well, that standard doesn't apply in these types of cases. So they couldn't even go through that more rigorous scrutiny in which it's really the burden is then placed on the government under that standard, and in this case, the government was relieved of that burden. And so in response, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and then there were some difficulties with that because it was also struck down at one point. But the state of affairs now, if I'm understanding it, is that many states have these state-level Religious Freedom Restoration Acts in place, and the government has a very limited form of it at the federal level. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And so that means that the landscape now is one where, well, it sounds like, first of all, Any kind of robust protection against government interference is a much more difficult negotiation, to keep using this word. And it really brings up, I mean, the Employment Division v. Smith case really brings up something that is at the heart of your book, and that is, when is a practice, when is a belief justifiably a religious practice, a religious belief. And part of the conversation now in 2019 seems to be that some things that we have often taken to be religious practices and religious beliefs are now being brought into question in the public square about whether or not they are actually genuinely religious. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, and that happened, that's coming up in a number of different contexts. And so I, I mean, the book looks at the range of contexts, right? So one of them is in cases where there is a, a real reason to think that the beliefs that are being asserted are not sincere or don't qualify as a religion for purposes of the religious freedom protection. So, for instance, I talk about the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster or people who want to sort of engage in the, in the illegal use of illicit drugs for recreational purposes and then try to position it as if it's for religious reasons. So that's, those are sort of the extreme cases. And then there is these uh, sort of raging culture wars, and I see them as two culture wars, which are, for the most part, separate, but then towards the end of the book, I really sort of explore the ways that I think that they intersect. And so one of those culture wars is the one between religious freedom and sexual freedom, ones that involve these cases of religious objections to the gay rights, same-sex marriage, or the facilitation of same-sex marriage, and also include issues related to abortion and contraception, right? So the, the, the highly controversial Hobby Lobby case that involved a fundamentalist Protestant family that owned the Hobby Lobby stores, the closely held family-owned business, and objected to the provision under the Affordable Care Act that required them to pay for two drugs, not all contraception. They were actually okay with the entire array of contraception, except for the ones that they considered abortifacient the morning after and week after pill, which they said violated their beliefs against abortion, which means they also cannot facilitate other people engaging in abortion. So then you have these, that type of culture where, where you do get a lot of, a lot of claims um, in the public discourse that you know, this is actually just a cover for bigotry or it's a cover for some other political aim, and they're kind of just using this religious language to justify some other intent. 
And so there's that. And then there's a second culture war, which is the one essentially between the Christian majority and religious minorities. And I think most pronounced between, at least in the public eye and in some recent cases, between essentially the majority and Muslims specifically as minorities. And in that context, I it goes the other way where it's the claim in which my book, which is titled The Wine Islam is Not a Religion, the argument in that case is like, well, Muslims don't get protection for XYZ religious practice because it's in fact not a religious practice, it's something else. And oftentimes that something else is explained as it's a political act, it's something that is just a ploy for the Muslim takeover of the U.S. So there's a lot there that I want to unpack, but for now we're going to take a quick break and then we'll get into that in the next segment. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt and our guest today is Asma Yudin. We're discussing her recent book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Asma Yudin, and she's written a dynamite recent book called When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. The title of your book really sets up the question that is at the heart of what we should be discussing in the rest of our conversation today, and that is there are those who now want to say that this multiple millennium old religion <laughs> that has is practiced by nearly two billion people in the world is not actually a religious practice, but it's something else. So help us, first of all, understand, if we can without caricature, but understand the basic logic of that argument that would want to say that Islam is not actually a religion, but it's something else. Sure. So the first place I heard this in its most explicit form was a place involving the Murfreesboro community, the Muslim community in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, that wanted to, after a series of attempts to accommodate the growing congregation in increasingly large spaces, large but inadequate they realized that it was time to finally build a mosque and a full, you know, like a full Islamic center that had various athletic facilities and community gathering facilities. And they set out to do this, and they used the same process that every other house of worship uses, and the county uh, approved it in the same way that approves every other house of worship, and published notice of approval in the local newspaper, again, per protocol. And quite to the surprise of both the community and the county, there was that notice sparked fierce opposition from a small but very vocal group of local residents who then brought a case against the county challenging that approval. And the argument was that Muslims and this mosque are very different from any other case of any other religion or any other house of worship. And the argument went because Islam is not a religion, it's a dangerous political ideology, this house of worship, or just, I should say, this mosque, because I didn't see it as legitimately a house of worship, is in fact, you know, potentially a, you know, they saw it as a Trojan horse in which extremists could come and plant themselves in American suburbs and from there emerge to do engage in the takeover of the United States, which is the cartoonish part of this, and, and much of this is very cartoonish. But the, the very specifically legal claim was that it violates the rights of the citizenry because they should have had a heightened level. There should have been a heightened level of review. There should have been more notices to them that this was being considered because it impacted their security rights. 
And so that's the way that it manifested in that particular legal case. And as the book continues, it sort of starts off with this Murfreesboro case, but it then examines the way that this, this claim has, in fact, been the foundation for lots of other policy proposals since around the same time as the Murfreesboro case in 2010. There was the beginning of the so-called anti-Sharia movement. And I know the word Sharia really just evokes lots of fear for a lot of people, and I'm happy to explain why that shouldn't be the case. But to date, 43 states have either proposed or enacted a so-called anti-Sharia law, and it's quite widespread. And it's, again, based on this idea that Muslims engaging in religious arbitration are somehow different from other religious believers who engage in their religious arbitration, because this will be the beginning of the takeover of sort of the institution of Sharia in American law and the subversion of American public policy and American constitutional values, because judges will then be involved in that process of enforcing these Sharia decisions, and that's going to you know, intermingle Sharia with U.S. law, the U.S. Constitution. So there's a lot there to unpack. Let me take a couple of pieces. So first of all, there is an argument that Islam is not a religion per se. It's instead it's a political ideology. So that's one side of the coin. I also sometimes have encountered the other side of the coin and a more extreme version of that that says that in actuality, Christianity is the only religion and anything else is just idolatry. Now, we don't often see that other side of the coin, but my question to you is, is that part of this conversation as well? Is it just an exclusion of specifically Muslim practice, or does it sometimes broaden to say any non-Christian practice is suspect? So for purposes of the book, you know, and I, I try to acknowledge the, in the course of writing this book and talking to a number of different people from different fields, whether academics or people in, who are in news commentary and so on, there are all kinds of questions that were kind of raised and that people sort of assumed that I was going to be talking about in the book. For example, is this an examination of the contours of what constitutes a religion? No, it's not. Is this about the way that our religious freedom law in the United States has been informed in a very particularly Protestant way? It doesn't take into account the the diversity of of, uh, ways to worship and, and be religious. No, not really. But those are all really great questions that I think that need to be interrogated. My focus was on the law, based on the fact that I am a lawyer and I do specialize in religious freedom, and this book very much came out of my decade of experience working on a range of religious claims, both conservative and progressive, on behalf of people of all religious beliefs, and then seeing the way that in that discourse, the one that's becoming there's something that's on a lot of people's radar. I think I just have everybody, everybody I've talked to, high schoolers, college age students, and, and beyond, they know something is up, right? We've all heard of what's going on on this national scale. And religious freedom is oftentimes talked about cynically. When it's written about, it's written with scare quotes. And so, really, kind of one aspect of that cynicism is based on this idea that there is a preference in the law or among justices or judges for one religion over another. And so that was really the question I was looking at. Also the fact that there is an extensive array of sort of analysis on Islamophobia, but all of it really centers on politics. It centers on media portrayals of really loud voices in media. And to the extent that it looks at questions of law, it looks at it in, within the national security prism, right? Like how are various national security laws violating fundamentals in the United States for Muslims? But there's, but even in that conversation, there's very little attention paid to religious freedom. And so that seemed to me very odd that 
Muslims as a religious community, that the conversation about their rights as a religious freedom issue wasn't something that was that had really been delved into. And so there's a, a number of reasons why I decided to write this book and to, to focus in on this particular aspect of the question, which then I centered around this claim that Islam is not a religion, because that is the particular vehicle, whether it's said in those precise words or in more subtle forms, that is essentially the way that these incursions into legal rights is taking place. So let me ask the question then in a very pointed way. Why should Christians, who are currently the majority in the United States, why should Christians care about the religious liberty of Muslims? Why should that be an important question for Christian believers? It goes to the very concept of religious liberty being a legal right. right? Again, not some broad notions of religious pluralism or religious tolerance, which are very important and necessary ideas in terms of how we live together and get along, but in the ability to actually exercise our beliefs and express our beliefs, that's where this question comes into, so what is the scope of protection, right? To what extent are we able to live in accordance with our beliefs and order our lives in accordance with those beliefs without the government coming in and stopping us? And the way that works is it's really just about how much power we're willing to give to the government in terms of its ability to regulate. And so when, when, and also the fact that cases that I've worked on really kind of show me the way in which a precedent that's created under one set of facts, once you have that precedent, it goes on to apply to a very other diverse set of facts. And so the way that we might be negotiating this politically is very, in many ways, irrelevant to that legal negotiation, to use that term again. And the reason that that's the case is because once you see power to the government, to regulate a set of beliefs that it or the majority disagrees with, you've essentially ceded the power now then when as administrations change, as the majority beliefs change, to then regulate your beliefs as well in, in the future. And so there's a lot there, but one of the things that, that I think our listeners need to grasp is that we may often have the understanding that law is law and it's black and white. But what you're telling us is that when the court decides something, oftentimes it's deciding simply the case that's in front of it. It's not deciding an ideal case, but rather the case that's been brought. And that means that that the decisions that it makes are good enough for that moment to move the conversation along. But if I've heard you correctly, oftentimes the court will then need to come back again with a new case and correct course to help to make the law in its application more fit the ideal that we have in our structure of rights here in this nation. Is that correct? I mean, it's not so much about the, the court correcting course, right? So it, the court is focused on, as you said, specific facts and legal issues before it. And from that, it develops a, it issues a ruling, and the ruling now has created a precedent that then can be used in a wide array of other cases. For instance, if you're a lawyer and you're trying and you're arguing a particular case, like you're going to be looking very carefully to the parsing through the language of the various relevant precedents and using that language and applying it to your unique set of facts. And so it's important to understand then that a precedent, that the language that came out of a particular set of facts can then be applied to another set of facts, right? So when I was working on the Hobby Lobby case, the type of concerns that I saw were a lot of people just didn't like the Green family. <laughs> like, they were just like from a range of concerns, such as the like, Green family missionizes in the Muslim world and distributes all these Bibles and trying to convert Muslims to Christianity, or the, with their ownership of the Museum of the Bible, their practices in securing certain artifacts were unethical. 
And so, I mean, there's just a range of different types of concerns that came up with respect to the Green family. I'm like, well, this has nothing to do with the Green family. This has to do with the particular legal issues that are in front of us. I mean, think about it in terms of prisoner cases, right? Prisoner religious freedom cases or any other sort of human rights case on behalf of a prisoner. The types of people you're often dealing with are people who have committed horrific crimes. The whole Hobbs case that I worked on was on behalf of a Muslim prisoner who was in prison for, for homicide. And so it's not like his, his personal morality that matters in this question of our negotiation of rights. It's not whether you like somebody or not or disagree with their beliefs and practices outside the context of the case or even within the context of the case. But it's really just, at the end of the day, what is the legal question? How does this match up with the law? And what are the various potential different types of rulings going to mean down the road? And so a case holding, for instance, that a particular religious believer that you don't agree with does not have a right, well, now you've created a precedent that says, that says that, well, in this context, you don't get religious freedom. You can use that same language and, and use it to justify restricting a number of other religious practices. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Asma Yudin about her recent book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. We'll be back in a moment. I'm not just going to tell you about my favorite bookstore. I'm going to tell you about two of my favorite bookstores. The Seminary Co-op and 57th Street Books are both located in Hyde Park, just a couple minutes off Lakeshore Drive. Widely regarded as one of the best academic bookstores in the world, the Seminary Co-op has an extensive selection of scholarly titles with a focus on the humanities and social sciences. 57th Street Books has an incredible selection of general interest titles, including a wide array of kids' books, popular fiction, cookbooks, science fiction, mysteries, and graphic novels. The next time you're in Hyde Park, stop in and visit the Seminary Co-op Bookstore on Woodlawn Avenue, right across the street from the University of Chicago, and check out their sister location around the corner on 57th Street. Visit them online at semcoop.com. That's S-E-M-C-O-O-P.com. You'll be glad you did. The Seminary Co-op Bookstores, serious books for curious readers. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Asma Yudin about her recent book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. Well, one of the things that is important for our listeners to understand is that when you're talking about these religious freedom cases, you're not speaking abstractly. You have actually been on the inside of some of the most important religious freedom cases of the last decade. In particular, you were part of the legal team that represented Hobby Lobby in a landmark case from a couple of years ago. Could you tell us a little bit about, first of all, what that case entailed? And then I'd like to ask a little bit about what it was like to work on that case. But let's start with the, the basics of what was at stake in the Hobby Lobby case. Sure. So the Hobby Lobby case is the most high-profile for-profit litigation that occurred in the aftermath of the issuance of the Affordable Care Act contraceptive mandate, which required employers to provide free of cost to their employees a range of contraception. And so, of course, there are lots of Catholic nonprofits that brought objections to the mandate because it's a pretty settled area of Catholic teaching that that Catholics can't use contraception, and which also means that then they can't facilitate the use of contraception by others because then they become complicit in the act that's considered sinful. And so, in the case of um, Hobby Lobby, as I had described earlier, they're not Catholic; they're actually fundamentally Protestant, and their beliefs are not in opposition to the use of contraception generally. 
but they do have religious beliefs against abortion. And their position was that two drugs out of the entire suite of drugs that were required, which they were more than happy to provide those drugs free of cost in their insurance plan for their employees, but two of them, the morning after and the week after pill, were abortifacients, essentially were constituted abortion. And so they said, we're happy to provide all these other drugs, but we object to the provision of these two particular drugs. And so they brought litigation against the government and its enforcement of this mandate on the company, which, by the way, was said that if you violate, if you're found to be in violation of this mandate, you will be fined, in the case of Hobby Lobby, up to $2 million a day. And to me, what's really amazing, and I think in so much of this conversation about the case, it's, so much of it was about this corporation and this family being culture workers, they deny access to abortion to, and to contraception by their female employees. And then there were, they're anti-women. This was waging a war on women, and that they're essentially just this is just about power and coercion. But what was really striking for me is that this, this multi-million-dollar company that was started from you know, inside the Greek garage and had grown to such tremendous success, they were willing to put this entire business on the line in defense of their convictions. Few people think about it that way. Like it can't be that it was pretextual because they were literally putting like everything on the line. And so this case, you know, made it up to the Supreme Court. They had lost in the lower courts up until that point. Well, actually, so they wanted the, the appellate court and the government appealed. And, and they were decided 5-4 with the conservative justices, that including Justice Kennedy, who were in favor of Hobby Lobby. It wasn't, again, we had this extensive discussion earlier, David, about how these cases are really about the specific legal issues and they're about the specific facts. And that was absolutely the case in, in the court's opinion in this case. And when she simply said, look, this is a standard. It was brought, it was a case argued under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The standard is, has the government placed a substantial burden on a person's religious belief, sincerely held religious belief? If so, the government has to prove as a compelling government interest. And the part of the test we haven't talked about so far is that you can't just say that there's an interest. You also have to back it up with evidence. And then you also have to show that there is no better way, or they say narrower way, of satisfying that interest than by placing this restriction on a person's religious beliefs. And so you were part of the team that represented Hobby Lobby. What was it like for you personally to be involved in those conversations? What what was at stake for you as a person of religious faith yourself being in those in, in the center of that discussion? Pose that question, you know, top down to what was at stake. But I would say it continues to be something that sort of has continued has raised, you know, has has continues to cost me in, in various sort of political ways, I guess you can say. Because the Hobby Lobby was the case that initiated the modern iteration of the religious culture wars, right? Like this, I now we see this come up over and over again. There are a number of initiatives and that have been created specifically to push back against what people see as the use of religion to deprive other people of rights, to do what is described as to prevent third party harms, right? And so you see legislation being proposed, such as the Do No Harm Act. You see initiatives at law schools that are that are centered around, you know, how do we defeat this particular use of RIFRA or religious freedom? And you see even the ACLU, one of once the most vocal proponent of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the aftermath of the Smith decision, now saying that it will not support RIFRA in its current form. And so it's definitely something that's ongoing and very much the center of a lot of these battles. And in the time period in which we were working on the case, and of course after we won, 
I mean, the attorneys who are, you know, speaking for the Green family and for Hobby Lobby on television, I mean, they were getting, who were essentially the public face of it, were getting death threats. It was something that for a long time I couldn't really talk about on social media platform because there's just so much anger. I mean, the level of anger that I was seeing from people, including Muslims. I mean, a lot of, a lot of Muslims, at least the ones who are socially and politically active and the ones that exist in my particular echo chamber are very politically progressive. And a number of them just didn't, there was an image that was put out as to what this case is about and what the Greens are like and what Hobby Lobby was doing against the the idea being that this was waging a war on women, you know, inserting the boss into the private lives of of women, the boss trying to control women's sexuality. I mean, that was the, the prevailing narrative. And so to say that you support their position in this case was essentially, in other people's minds, as a way of saying, well, you're against women's rights. And I'm like, well, do you see me? I mean, do you understand that I, too, am a woman? And so how is it that you can just be that simplistic in your formulation of the issues? But unfortunately, that is the state of our polarized discourse, one that continues to this day. You know, I think it's getting worse by the day. And so it's for me, it was a big risk even just putting out this book, right? Because it's my most public form of expressing my position on the case and saying, well, guess what? You know, this is my position. Not only is it my position, but I was part of the case that helped vindicate those rights. So it's been a little scary putting it out there, especially because a number of reviews, whether it be the Washington Post or The Economist, have really kind of pulled that particular part out or highlight because I think it's just, I think it's compelling for people. But, you know, it's my first attempt at being very public uh, with my positions on this. Well, I just want to say, as a reader of the book and as a person who, as I said at the top of the show, I'm very much interested in these kinds of issues. I'm so glad that you wrote this book, and I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk about it. I learned a lot from this book, and I want to say to all of my listeners, if you have the chance to pick up When Islam is Not a Religion, read it from cover to cover, and you're going to get just a a master class in the history of this particular subject of American law and constitutional practice. It is, it's a wonderful book. And thank you so much, Asma, for talking to us about it today. Thank you. Thank you, David, for having me. We've been speaking today with Asma Yudin. She's a religious liberty lawyer who has worked on cases at the U.S. Supreme Court and at federal appellate and trial courts. She's the founding editor-in-chief of altmuslima.com and a producer and advisor for the Emmy and Peabody-nominated docuseries The Secret Life of Muslims. Today we've been discussing her recent book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.